Welcome to Something Old, Something New, a podcast about things important to you, not you, to the people I talk to. Um, I'm Hannah Nicklin and you're listening to the first episode of a podcast I've been meaning to get off the ground for an almost ridiculous amount of time. Uh, thanks up front to my awesome Patreon backers who've made this possible. So what's the deal? The deal is I know a lot of really interesting people and I wanted to be able to share their interestingness with you. I wanted to find a format to do that in though because I didn't want to ramble on for a a super long amount of time. So this is the format that I've decided to use. Doctor Who fans and people who've been to a Westing wedding will probably know the old rhyme saying you should wear something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue for good luck in I guess your marriage or something. Okay, I went away and looked this up on Wikipedia and it's all about fertility and sex and warding off evil magic. I'm not going to do any evil magic, I'm going to talk to interesting people. The format. Uh, The format is uh, that I'm using this rhyme. I'm going to find interesting people and invite them to talk to me about things important to them. Bits of culture, games, films, books, music, artefacts, poems, ideas, something old that they've always carried with them, something new, recently discovered, something borrowed, recommended to them or or stolen off someone. And then I'm going to change the final bit of the rhyme because it might have gone a bit weird to say something blue. Uh, I'm going to change it to something you are doing or working on at the moment. So there you go. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something you are working on at the moment or interested in. So my first guest is Mark Sorrell. Mark is a game designer, thinker and consultant who works in the area of free-to-play games. It's worth pointing out that this interview was actually done around a year ago in the autumn of 2014. Since that time, Mark has moved to Sweden uh, or somewhere around there and become a very important person at Rovio Games. So it's worth bearing in mind that these ideas and opinions are not those of very important person at Rovio, Mark Sorrell, but of not as much important person, Mark Sorrell, monetization and game design freelance consultant. People are often kind of surprised that Sorrell and I get on so well. We met when I worked at the game design studio Hide and Seek. I'm a radical left-leaning, overly pious anti-capitalist whom my cycling coach recently accused of being too nice to sprint well enough to win races, whereas Sorrel has a deadpan and forthright demeanour which is mostly about telling people they're awful, wrong or awfully wrong and then convincing them to give him some money. But we are, in fact, not those things, at least not those things alone. Where we overlap is that we are both keen observers of human behaviour, both interested in in how we design for and with human behaviour in games and game system. One of the best ways I've found to introduce Sorrel is by using the pub game that he designed called Fork. Fork is a game uh, for drunk people explicitly. Uh, All you need is two drunk people and a fork. You decide amongst yourselves who goes first, which is an extremely important part of the game. Um, But once decided, uh, player one stabs player two in the arm with a fork as hard as they want. And then player two stabs player one in the arm with a fork as hard as they want. 
and that's that's fork. That's the end of the game. You can play again if you wish, but that is, <laughs> that's it. That's the end of the game. And it's so much more about the negotiations yes. than it is about actually... Because mm. if you go first, then you get to decide how hard to stab someone, mm-hmm. but also you then don't have any control over how hard you will be stabbed back. Quite. And then the final, the denouement, <laughs> what I'm describing to people, <laughs> is that I once, I once uh, saw you play this game on your own. <laughs> it's true, it is, yes. Uh, well, it, yeah, it was, I was very drunk. It was my leaving day from Hide and Seek. Yeah. And uh, just to demonstrate the joys of fork to everybody, <laughs> I played it with myself. And I stabbed myself in the arm with a fork. Um, it kind of bled a little bit. Okay, it um, was like creditably hard. Yeah, everybody laughed. And that's. I think I, I, think I kind of did a, a gasp. I think I wasn't laughing as much as. Because I like gave you some napkins. During, during <laughs> over the course of the evening, everybody laughed at some point, And I'm going to claim credit for that. I mean, and that explains who I am quite neatly, I think. Yes, it does. So, that's Sorrel who is very kindly going to talk to us about four things that are important or interesting to him. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something he's doing at the time of the interview, which I, and again, remind you, is autumn 2014. The thing that the old thing I want to talk about is me. (laughs) Um, I am old now. I am old now. I am... I'm 38 years old. Um, And I've been in the games industry now for over genuinely over a decade. I've been claiming I've been in the industry on CVs and such over a decade for over a decade no no for quite a while but now it's actually true I have genuinely I'm I'm 11 12 years now Mm -hmm. the only time I felt old is very recently perhaps within the last six months I've started to realize Mm. that there genuinely has been a change and it's a change where which hasn't I've not been a part of I'm being 38. I was born in 1976. My dad came home with an Atari VCS in 1980 when I was four, 1979 actually, I think when I was three. But anyway, the point is, when I was just about the age you could understand what a game is in a meaningful way, was exactly the moment when it was first possible to play a video game. I am as old as video games are. There is now a change going on. And there's a whole generation of people now who are growing up, who are now coming to, to, to fruition, I suppose. Uh, they have grown up in video game culture rather than just with video games. You know, I grew up with the artefacts. They've grown up with the culture. And that change is is really interesting to see. And it's really powerful. And it's one that, that is definitely something that's only starting to occur to me now. I mean, I, I think very much what I'm interested in in games is doing things differently and doing new things. And I think I'll be like that forever. That's just what I'm like. I am a, a liberal in the sense of I'm always interested in change, a radical liberal. In fact, I think, you know, we should change stuff and things should be different. And that's like how I want to live my life. I think, you know, we have bad answers to every question and we should always be looking for better ones. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I'm not worried. But there is unquestionably like the, the, the sort of like, well, I'm just going to make this game. It's something I can't really do. I don't have that skill set and I don't feel comfortable. I feel like an old person, <laughs> like kind of like, oh, I can't, re- I'm, well, I'll break. But if I press that button, I'll delete the internet kind of feelings. <laughs> Genuinely having those sort of like, I can't do this. It isn't natural to, to me. So like 1994 is, is the year the PlayStation came out, actually. The PlayStation came, exactly, the PlayStation is 20 years old and it's just at acceleration. If you were born at the same time as the PlayStation... Your experience of video games is wildly different to mine, and your understanding of their place and culture, and your acceptance of them. And is it producing like a um, radically different person, game maker, game thinker? Yes. Well, it's it's, it's allowing ga- it's allowing games to 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 broaden out massively for starters. It's certainly allowing 
game to mean a lot of different things, but it's more to do with production than anything else. It's the fact that there are so many people who are just making a game. Mm. I mean, there was an article I, I saw yesterday, basically a, um, an article that's a game. It's a playable article. The article that we're talking about here is Parable of the Polygons by Vihart and Nikki Case, which is a playable blog post about the diversity of communities and how they become segregated. Give it a Google after you finish listening. It was brilliant because it was like saying, look, this is, this is, this is a problem in the discussion about the diversity, and here is... And here we can show you it's actually happening and you can get involved in it. And it's mm. something I've been agitating for for years, for years, literally. I can I genuinely prove that with old blog posts where I've been going, why are we doing this? It's so... At the same time, seeing someone actually do it like that seemingly so easily, mm. or at least actually doing it, is kind of scary to me personally, but wonderful for the world. And I can see my, my own relevance starting to diminish in the, in the world of games. Um, Obviously, there are other ways in which, I, in which I think I'll be more useful as time goes by, but there is certainly, my role will be, is now changing, yeah. officially, definitely. I am an old hand now, not a new young blood, and it's an interesting um, it's an interesting thing to experience. So tell me about your something new. It isn't that new, but it's new to me, and I think that's the point. <clears throat> and it is certainly relevant to, to what's happening in games at the moment, uh, and that's Depression Quest. Um, I haven't actually played quest in the, the sort of internet I read it was quite a big thing but I didn't actually play it at the time obviously it became far far bigger after Gamergate. Gamergate for those who are listening from communities other than games was or is a reactionary libertarian right movement in games that's made a name for itself destroying the lives of women minorities LGBTQ etc and other marginalized folk in games they are also against other things like games being about non-Western male perspectives or being about subjects that aren't coldly defeating adversity in 60 frames per second or people in journalism knowing and sometimes being friends with the community that they report on. I would advise you not to look it up. This is me censoring you. Obviously, it became far, far bigger after Gamergate. And, uh, but I hadn't actually played it, and I did, and uh, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. It was generally one of the best things I've, I've played in a while. Mm. Um, it made me cry um, a bit, not much, but a little. Some, some tears came out, definitely. <laughs> uh, some tears came out of Mark Sorrell's face. You know, it was profoundly moving, and uh, it was brilliantly executed, uh, and um, very easy to... to um, empathize with and it was, it was a really really great piece of work and um the thing about it is uh that it is not a game it's not a game it isn't a game it also is a game but it also isn't a game and this dichotomy of all this trouble we have with the word game and what is and isn't a game and how games work and so on and so forth is genuinely my oldest concern in games and it also i think is where i can be useful in the future to a degree i think i mean dysphoria was always the game that i that most exemplifies this. Dysphoria is brilliant. I think it's amazing. Profoundly insightful and brilliant. Um, it's right up there with Passage for me in terms of games doing something brilliant briefly and, and brilliantly and explaining something in a way you couldn't do with anything else. Mm -hmm. But Dysphoria also isn't a game. But it also is. The point of Dysphoria is that it looks like a game but isn't. Which considering it's about um, transgender is kind of like you know content and appearance and meaning being twisted up like that, it's it's you know, the meta, the better. Every aspect of it is feeding every other aspect of it. It's brilliant. But the discussion around it, I, I've I've come from a time where, and obviously I live in a quite commercial world. I'm not an art game person. I'm a free to play game design consultant. You know what I mean? I'm a retention and monetization expert. That's what my interest is. 
I'm not an artist and I don't want to be an artist. So to me, when you define what a game is, my favourite definition of what games, what game is, is what game designers do. They turn numbers into feelings. But then there's this kind of technical definition of what a game is in those terms and rules and win conditions and all this. But then there's also the word game in terms of like, I guess a bit more like the word movie, as in like it's a package, it's a box that you put a thing in and also just says it's a game. I mean, when you come to both to Depression Crest and Dysphoria, the fact it says it's a game, even though on by quite a lot of definitions they're not, is what makes the experience work in the first place. And it's this annoying thing that when we have this one word, it means that you have this weird sort of like argument occur, which I don't think is necessarily really a real argument. Yeah, it feels to me that there's a, there's a lethargy in certainly the more indie arty end of the sector at the moment with the whole question is this a game and everyone goes i don't care i'm just gonna make it anyway um do you think uh, um i'm sure you'd agree that lethargy is well placed but do you think Mm. it's still an important discussion to have or a discussion that should be had differently the the moment games seem incredibly occupied and reasonably occupied with issues of representation and obviously you know reasonably so much needed for a long time and i think defining what isn't isn't a game means different things to different people and it is important in all these issues you know you need to listen to people and take things seriously when people go oh, i've got a problem with this then you know you have to respect that actually weirdly i think it's to do with indie versus commercial in a lot of respects in a commercial world defining what is and isn't a game along mechanicalistic terms going this is a game because it has game mechanics this is not a game because it doesn't have game mechanics is an extremely important definition and difference to make and trying to get games accepted by that commercial world because you know i'm talking about people older than me basically didn't grow up with video games and they don't understand what they are you know and how they work and what makes a game a game you've then got this indie art end of the spectrum which is generally a lot younger who are absolutely immersed in this stuff and have absolutely no difficulty in distinguishing and also don't care because it's like they and they do understand intuitively so mm-hmm. and so for them the fact that it, it doesn't matter it's a sort of a, a talking to cultural power if you're talking to like incumbent, culturally incumbent people, they need to understand the difference. I think also within the sort of AAA console, we game, 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 game mm-hmm. um, market. There's, there's. Um, it's always interesting to look at the amount of money and time and effort that's spent on sort of uh, graphical resources and, and like making a game that looks amazing and sounds amazing and production techniques and hitting deadlines mm-hmm. and how little money and time is actually spent on the kind of art of game design in and of itself. There's often a real paucity of game design within huge games with enormous budgets. The example I always bring up is Fable 2. Um, hugely relevant game to everybody, of course, but <laughs> Fable 2. The mini games in Fable 2 literally had you pressing buttons in, t- in time to on-screen prompts, right? <laughs> and that was it. And I'm like, seriously? Peter Molyneux, you know, waving his hands around in the air. Like, <laughs> Kind of, and, uh, and 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 claiming to be the, the next greatest thing, and then the game, a part where they could have done anything with the game design, there they could have done anything. It was like a little here's here's a team. You've got two weeks, go away, make something pretty, or, or whatever they could have done in that time. And they just had you pressing buttons in time to a prompt. So again, I think even within the games industry, the idea of game mechanics is a sacrosanct and important and exciting thing that deserves respect and interest and study isn't present you know like game mechanics and how games work and you know in that mechanical that mechanical sense that that definite that sort of slightly old slightly formal definition of what a game is is what i'm 
that's the kind of game that interests me. And is, it, me. is that because they play with the currency of human behaviour? Is that yeah. your interest in them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, a hardcore determinist, right? I, I, you know, humans are machines and we'd like to fool ourselves otherwise. I've always been very interested in Machiavellian solutions to things. And I mean that in like a, the truest sense of the word. Not as in manipulating for your benefit, but as in understanding what truth really is. What what would What is the the brutal thing that would work that you could do here because I think once you know that you can then make a moral decision about whether or not you're going to do it but I think if you start with the moral position then you don't take into account what could be done without that the kind of brutal sentimentalist sort of thought is an important one to include in your in, in your process I think mm-hmm. particularly when you're a game designer if you really want to crack the world economy you should you probably get game designers and magicians and stand-up comedians on it like because those are the free people who have no room in their work for sentimentality because if a joke's not funny you don't laugh Mm -hmm. if a piece of magic isn't if you isn't impressive you don't go whoa and if a game isn't fun you don't play it so what's an example for you of a really mechanically sound game or um, a good piece of design mechanically speaking right? Desert Golfing is an example of a game that is mechanically sound and that's why you play it right there's nothing else there you just hit a little ball over and over and over again like I don't know what hole I'm on but I know I'm on over three and a half thousand shots now right so I've done three and a half thousand shots in a golf game for <laughs> no reason and it just fits into like oh I'm on the train I'll just yeah it's humane bites of time as well isn't it it is, which interestingly ties in very neatly to what I'd like to talk about next. We're now at something borrowed. Um, well, I've got um, a couple of talks coming up. Uh, and one of them is going to be on, uh, and it's something I'm thinking about generally in my work a lot at the moment, actually. Mm. And that's stealing the word heuristics. This has come from a, a couple of places. Um, this is, again, like I say, I, the games I'm in, I make, and the games I'm interested in, genuinely, the games I find invigorate me mentally are mm-hmm. commercial games. I'm interested in how that works. I'm not an indie game developer, and I'm, you know, I find a lot of their work very, very interesting, but it's not, you know, I'm, I'm more interested by how Clash of Clans works. game that I've enjoyed, <laughs> game that I've played a lot recently and enjoyed is Destiny. One of the things in Destiny um, that I think is awesome the piece of design which I admire the most, there's a, a special vendor in the game called Zur. And Zur uh, takes a special currency that you, you can earn throughout the game mm-hmm. in small amounts. Um, he sells the best gear in the game by miles. And he is only uh, in the, the town uh, at weekends. Mm-hmm. He's there for 48 hours a week and that's it. Mm-hmm. And those 48 hours specifically are the weekend. Now, in actual fact, because of resets, he's there from 9 o'clock in the morning on Friday to 9 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. So, yeah. <laughs> the idea is that he's there. If you live in the States, he is pretty much there for the weekend. But brilliant, I think, because it fits into something we already have a heuristic or shortcut for, which is the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. The weekend is a thing that exists in Western culture. We understand the weekend very clearly. As has been mentioned by Simon Parkin in a great article that he wrote, um, it is very much like a, a mirror of um, consumer culture, I guess. You know, work all week and then go to the mall at weekends and spend your money. But that's what they're mapping. And it feels very satisfying as a consequence. You look forward, I look forward to, like in, in Destiny speak in the community, it, the, the week is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Zerday, <laughs> Saturday, Sunday. <laughs> um, 
because uh, it's like that's the day when he comes and it's like everyone's like oh what's he gonna have oh my god I can't wait um, and it's genuinely really very exciting mm-hmm. and it's a brilliant piece of design all they've done is said well you're gonna have to wait till the weekend for that sure um, and in, uh, for this awesome stuff particularly obviously as I mentioned I work in mobile principally where um, mass mass market is super important and so the idea of of, of hooking into social the social part well okay what are the social features in your game and uh, everybody kind of goes i don't know we'll just have some things and nobody the amount of thought that goes into it is surprisingly small mm. compared to the p- professed importance and yet something as simple as well at weekends it's different because like weekends is relevant to people's lives just doesn't feature mm. um and the other game again not a mobile game but uh diablo uh, reaper of souls expansion is also doing some interesting things with heuristics and then stopping short which is these kind of or, or mirroring real life things things we have shortcuts for in the console versions of the game if you find a legendary item you will also find a present for your for a random friend which is also a legendary and you can send it to them and they'll get a legendary too and randomly sometimes if an enemy kills you it will then appear in your friend's game as a bigger, tougher enemy. And if it kills them, it will then appear in another friend's game as an even bigger, tougher enemy, and so on and so on and so forth. And so they've built in these really interesting mechanics, built into the game itself in a quite a smart way at some important, interesting points. But what it doesn't do is reflect in any way the actual relationships that I have with people. Mm-hmm. So I play Diablo with two people, principally, one of whom is my friend Barry, who is my guy I play games with friends he's pretty much my best friend just loving him um hey Barry and uh I play with him an enormous amount um and so when I get a present I kind of want it to be for Barry because that's actually more useful for me <laughs> such and a sorrow thought the other yeah the <laughs> yeah it is um it would be come on instantly the Machiavellian answer what's who's the best person the other person I play with uh-huh. is my girlfriend Naomi Sorrel is now married to this lovely person, and I'm pretty stoked for him. They seem happy in a way that makes him look continually surprised at his good fortune. I have a real life relationship. She really digs the game. We have a great time. Again, I'd like really like presents. Even more, actually, to be perfectly honest, I'd like presents to be for her. And this is my point. I have a real life relationship. One's my best friend, and one of them is my girlfriend. And the amount of social sort of pressure that can be exerted, social proof that can be exerted by some individuals in my life is massively higher than others. Mm-hmm. The fact that these are real relationships people have and people play games with these people in different ways mm-hmm. could be enormously powerful, way more powerful than just going, yeah, it's your friends list, we just imported it, we treat them all exactly the same. Having Using these shortcuts, heuristics effectively for relationships and for, for, for days of the week, and for times of day. Again, another one that infuriates the crap out of me is that um, uh, social games don't, realize that i'm lying in bed checking them first thing or i'm over my coffee in the morning and i'm like i'll just log in and have a look right it's like that is a specific event it's not the same as my other logins throughout the day it's clearly not right Mm -hmm. if you're playing a game like that several logins a day which a lot a lot lot of people do with games right i can't think of a single game which no which which gives a shit that you're logging in for the first time that awake period (laughs) And goes, oh, hi, you know, here's the morning news over your coffee, you know. We know you want, like, it's probably a slightly slower check-up on things, how's stuff going kind of experience right now. It makes me think of one of the best, like, simple 
site designs in the cultural sector that I've ever seen was um, Yorkshire Sculpture Park. Right. And the site is mostly just a big, beautiful picture of Yorkshire Sculpture Park. But right. depending on the time of day you looked at it, it was a different time of day of the picture. Beautiful. Which is just everything that you need Yorkshire Sculpture Park to do, except go, this is where I am, this is how much car parking costs. Yeah, which it probably doesn't do either of those things. Oh, no, it did. It was, no. it was just really well designed. I, I think, actually, it got changed as well. I don't know why they did that, but it used to be my one go-to, like, cultural sector here. This is how a website could be good. <laughs> it also made me think of um, a book from, like, the 80s called Computers as Theatre right. by Brenda Laurel, um, where she sort of just talks about those... Back in the day, before there were these spaces in our heads that understood necessarily how a desktop worked, Mm -hmm. she invented with some people the phrase desktop to describe a bit of the user interface on a computer. Right. Files and folders. Yep. And uh, there's a really interesting talk I saw someone give once about the... um, the, the influence of surfing culture on web terminology <laughs> because it came out of California. Yeah. And um, there's something there about the way that we fit, um, the, the way that you invite people as a designer to fit things into their heads, oh. into spaces that sort of already exist. Yes. And building new spaces is really difficult. Um, Absolutely. I also have ethical concerns, <laughs> for, <laughs> surprisingly, um, yeah. about your... Uh, I mean, like, there's just so much data and, um, I guess, like, con- concerning contextual processing thereof involved in this is one of your significant others. You don't even have to tell us this is one of your significant others. We've worked it out. It's a, it's a leap ahead of what I was suggesting. Okay. I'm suggesting you give players the agency to, 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 to make those relationships clear if they wish, not necessarily that the computer does it for you. Listening back to this, I can hear myself sitting on an objection that I don't speak because I don't want the recording to go on forever, but I think it's at least worth airing that the idea of instrumentalising relationships should concern us ethically and morally. Turning our relationships into instruments of profit or emotion or thought or feeling is not a new thing. If I sit you in front of a film about, for example, a child losing their mother, you'll draw on your experience of being a child with a mother and relate to what you're seeing. The film plays upon this common understanding as a shorthand for a bunch of things. But within game systems, that instrumentization of our relationships isn't just a force, but a force with a direction. It feeds back into the system and can have more complicated, implicated and stronger effects. This is in many ways how social media works, and we know from social media that algorithms are not neutral, etc. They come with ethical and moral effects that are emergent and difficult to predict and should be thought about. Of course, Sorrel is also aware of this, and so are you. I just felt like it ought to be said. The, first time that. the other thing um, I, I just want to say before we do move on, because I do want to speak mm-hmm. about something um, quite connected to what we're talking about right now, but the other part of this, I think, is this idea of games as escapism, which is interesting when tying it into the real world. Um, and this, I guess, pretty simple point is just that I think that, that it's that con- contrast that makes it work in a lot of respects. I think bringing more real world into games actually makes them better as escapism in a lot of respects. It's putting a layer onto the real world rather than giving it completely different manifestations. The other thing... The final question, something you are working on or doing or otherwise interested in and want to talk about right now, etc, etc. Actually, it's about ethics in gaming. I've talked on a number of occasions about gaming ethics and being as I do... um, work as a monetization 
consultant, ethical questions do come up a lot because people are suspicious of free-to-play, mostly, I think, rather than there's that much unethical behaviour going on. Mm-hmm. I don't think, think free-to-play is inherently less ethical than other games, the other ways of paying for things at all. In fact, I think it's more ethical, to be perfectly honest, because it asks you for no money up front. <laughs> if you like it, you can buy more stuff. The idea that there's a free and then a better version of something to me is more ethical than they pay well particularly than triple a console stuff well that's right i've spent 150 quid or thereabouts a bit more maybe on clash of clans and i when i played world of warcraft over the i, I worked out that i spent about a thousand pounds on world of warcraft and i kind of don't regret that either mm-hmm. i've had an amazing amazing experience with that game and uh yeah i've spent 40 50 quid on triple a titles that i've been hugely disappointed with and immediately regretted mm-hmm. you know the genuine problem with the ethics in video games is exactly this, and it's because games aren't free-to-play. Free-to-play games don't have that problem. Mm-hmm. The whole point of them is, will you just play it? And that's how you find out whether it's any good or not. It's been interesting, actually, to see journalism around free-to-play games try, you know, starting to evolve, and the fact that a lot of it, for a long time, was shit. But yeah, ethics, uh, ethics is um, something certainly I think about quite a lot. I've written about extensively and talked about. But I'm doing another talk about it soon. So let me, let me take a step back. I do a talk, um, don't talk quite a lot, and I, and I still use this as a go-to example because it's great, about behavioural economics um, in games um, and some great examples. And one of the ones I start with is Hearthstone and the pricing of Hearthstone's packs of cards. Now, Hearthstone's an iPad game and, and, and Mac and PC game by Blizzard. It's great. It's a card game. works like Magic the Gathering. And it monetizes by you buying packs of cards, principally. And you can buy them in different packs of packs of cards. And uh, the more you buy, the cheaper they are per pack. Except, if you look at how much they actually cost per pack, um, the first pack is 99.5p, and then the second one is 99.8p, and then the next one is 98.something p, and the next one that's 95p. So in actual fact, the first one is cheaper than the second one which makes no sense. You should get more and more of a discount. Um, why would they do that? There's a thing called Ugly Brother Pricing, which is where you try and persuade people to buy something by giving a shit version of it. And they, if they're having difficulty choosing between two options, if you make a shit version of one of the options, then people will buy the, uh, the, the good version of that. And so it's sort of like, oh, here you go. There's some decoy pricing going on right there. Um, except it isn't at all actually decoy pricing. All it is is a translation from dollars into pounds. <laughs> if you look on the American site, they do get cheaper as you go down. They've just converted the prices into pounds, and as a consequence, there's been this little change where the number of, of fractions of a penny has changed to make that slightly more expensive. But it still works. If you look at like which, which what packs are bought most often, they're different on the US and UK stores. So mm-hmm. it, it does work. Mm. And this is the point. Behavioural economics works whether you know it, you did it on purpose or not doesn't matter. It just works. That's what it is. It's economics that work. <laughs> economic, regular economics being just some stuff people made up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, the point of all this is it, it, even if you don't know you're doing it, you're still doing it and it still works. And so back to Destiny. Mm-hmm. Destiny um, uses two incredibly abusive techniques to retain people. Two horrible, horrible techniques. The first of which is it uses very strong... Um, representation of lucky events and an enormous amount of lucky events so you rely on luck a great deal with quite high volatility the rewards are very high but the chances of you winning are very low mm-hmm. high volatility gambling 
is more addictive than low volatility, volatility gambling. And generally speaking, people who are addicted to gambling tend to enjoy higher volatility events more than lower volatility events. Secondly, reinforcement, very high. When you are successful, when you get a great item, the game sure as hell tells you about it and you get this big flashing like bling, ding, 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 and it's like, it's like, woo. So eventually after a while, it gets to a point where you're not so interested in the, in what you've won as that you've won. So you have the, the firstly, you have this high volatility. Secondly, you have this, this, this kind of like slight disconnect between what it is you are getting and it's, you know, it's usefulness in the game and the announcement that you've won. Uh, socially, you are actually quite isolated. It's quite difficult to talk to other people. While you can see other people in order to covet their gear, you can't really interact with them in any meaningful way. And it's quite interesting that they've made it so you can see other people but not really play with them very easily. The consequence of these three things put together is that you end up with a very addictive setup. It, you end up with this really quite abusive retention stuff, and it's working. De um, Destiny retains fantastically well. Now, did they do that on purpose or not? It is impossible to know. Theoretically, on purpose is different from we observe it has this effect, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they might they not have the theory to... at their hands. Regardless of whether it is or not, it is quite harmfully damaging, damaging stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the, what, what are the ethical implications of that? We know these ways are effective. They yeah. are. They do retain. Now, knowing that we have that information, again, we come back to this Machiavellian argument, we now have that information, right? If you want to make a game that retains, those are some of the things you should be doing. I guess it comes down to informed consent, doesn't it? Yeah, using uh, behavioural economic techniques, like the ones you've highlighted, like Ugly Brother, like um, Loss Aversion, mm -hmm. all these things, they attest to the way that our brains work, right? Yep. Ways that we might not be wholly aware of, like the fact that it's really difficult for us to judge probabilities mm -hmm. properly without genuinely understanding the theory, which is a collection of, human knowledge which we've accrued and only really through collectivity yep. do we accrue that knowledge um so individually can you give informed consent on a um a, an experience manipulative in that manner or is it just really convincing equivalent of good storytelling <laughs> like and how manipulative is good storytelling well, aristotle would argue that it's actually the thing that stops us uh, having a revolution every day. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, ethics in gaming. Well, uh, yes. I mean, if you look at Up, I mean Up, at yeah. the beginning of Up, yes, I can watch that a hundred times and cry, just like cry forever every time. I'm crying now, thinking <laughs> about Up. I'm crying right now. So what do you, how do you... That's manipulative as hell. Mm -hmm. It's brutally manipulative. Is it unethical to make me cry by manipulate having experts in the storytelling arts and manipulate me like that? But perhaps you understand that the exchange in a movie manipulation situation is uh, two hours and 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're in a game context, the ethics of manipulating people in for attention is any number of hours and effects on your life. Yes. Game balance. There's no question that the, the, the effect, potential effects are much, much greater. It's interesting. I spent £1,000 on World of Warcraft. I also spent 150... I had 150 days played, something like that. Mm -hmm. That's 150 times 24 hours. It's a lot, right? But I really enjoyed it. I um, I couldn't have enjoyed it so much if I hadn't devoted myself to it in that way. 
I'm doing a, a I'm making a new show next year about doing an Ironman, which I think I've told you about a little bit. No, actually. Um, well, I'm doing an Ironman next I year. I can believe that easily. <laughs> and uh, I'm making a show about it. It's now a year or so later, and I can happily report I completed the Outlaw Long Distance or Ironman Triathlon and made a piece of theatre about it. It's about the science and psychology and experience of the event, and it's called Equations for a Moving Body, and you can see it at Camden People's Theatre, CPT, in London from the 31st of May to the 4th of June and in Edinburgh at The Fringe for most of August 2016. Come and see it. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the uh, professors that I'm working with at the University of Northumbria, um, she's a specialist in flow and in its role in addiction in sport. And obviously we know like flow is a Mm -hmm. a game uh, design factor, I suppose. Is that how you describe it? Flow as a concept of play and sport and mastery is the idea uh, of a guy called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Uh, there's a pretty decent Wikipedia article on him. Flow is basically an optimal state of intrinsic motivation where you're doing a thing and you're rewarded so much by the doing of it that the rest of the world extrinsic to that activity can sort of fall away. So bike racing, playing super hexagon, jazz improvisation, all of these things can offer a challenge skill balance that makes everything vanish. You do the thing for its own sake. Your sense of self fades away and you become the activity. Yeah. An aim, I suppose. It's a, a description of the experience of when... A, when it's good, yeah. Yes. Um, and so you spent, how many hours did you say? Well, it's 2,000 plus 3,000, 3,600 hours. 3,600 hours. So like yesterday, I, I ran into the stats part of my Strava app, which tracks how much I swim, mm-hmm. how much I run, and how much I um, cycle. And uh, this year, I've, sp- I've spent um, 496 hours and 15 minutes doing sport. It's not bad. That's one seventh the amount I spent in three years. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I don't mean. Um, I'm absolutely not saying that's a better use of my time. I don't necessarily. But... I don't. I don't <laughs> but like what I'm saying is, is that that experience. Um, there's some. There's something inherently retentive about that experience mm-hmm. for me, and a lot of that to do is measuring things, being in a Strava environment where other people mm-hmm. see what I put up. And also um, to do with the, the flow of improving at a thing. Yes. Um, and uh, like uh, re- retention is, is a thing that you can quite easily set up in your own life without mm. the mechanics of a game. Well, by adding the mechanics of by a game, well. actually, is what you're saying. <laughs> sort of, yeah. And it's, it's interesting as well how, that, um, how the, the perfect like, RPG levelling up mirrors very closely the way you get better at sport. Like, games are just, uh, their fundamental currency is humans and human behaviour, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is why, when you manipulate that to make your game better, how is that unethical again? It's all to do with informed consent, isn't it? That's what I would argue. Well, no, because that's not... I mean, it would be nice if it was, <laughs> but I don't think it is, I guess is my I argument. I mean, isn't that how you make it ethical, though? Or do you think that it can be... Um, do you think no. the ethics depends on the, the person designing it or the... No, I, I think that it's just beyond... Like, I just think that the, the point of human ethics are fundamentally flawed, I guess, to a degree. And it's these questions, again, are... I mean, ethical... It's, it's reasonable to suggest that ethical 
concerns themselves are also governed by human behavioural things, and we will make similar ethical decisions based on our heuristics and what we've learned is right and wrong. Not that there are absolute answers to this. There are some biological and imperatives, so, yeah, exactly. like preferencing someone with your family because they have your more of your gene. Yep. If, if, see, if you'd asked me before I started playing World of Warcraft, if you told me what was going to happen, I would not have agreed to it. But I'm immensely glad it happened. Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure that informed consent is even is even actually a gold standard in this case. It sounds nice, it sounds good, and it uses words that we like, like informed and consent, but I don't think they're ne- it's necessarily actually the ethical answer to that question. I think it's more... In fact, like I say, I don't think there is one answer you can give, because, mm-hmm. like, yes, informed consent is our way of doing it, and it would take care of certain situations. I think having, you know, a benevolent game designer who's, who has best interests at heart is an answer that will deal with some situations. Again, you can think easily of situations where that wouldn't be relevant or that wouldn't be appropriate. Um, so I, I think the answer truly is that there isn't an ethical answer and the search for an ethical answer is fundamentally impossible because there isn't a single set of ethics that all disagree on in the yeah, first or, place. Or I guess I suppose a single set of circumstances, it might be entirely appropriate and useful for someone to spend um, hundreds of their hours on this thing yeah. and for other people it could be damaging. Exactly. Which is the problem when it comes to are games addictive, are games damaging because it depends on the person. It does. Compare it to alcohol or. On on the flip side, we do design them that way. And I think it's difficult. It's, you know, when I talk about what I do, retention and monetization, retention is addiction. That's what I do. It's kind of like, to a degree, it's getting someone to play something over and over and over again. At what point does that cross a line into addiction? It's just like essentially a humane thing of. Like sugar is incredibly damaging, right? Mm-hmm. Sugar is addictive, theoretically. Yeah, hugely addictive, damaging part of our diets, especially uh, following like the whole low fat movement, which was completely misplaced science. Yep. Um, fundamentally, however, someone somewhere is just trying to make a really tasty cream bun mm-hmm. <laughs> that yep. might be the thing that picks you up on the day that your dad went into hospital. Or, yep. Um, and, and, and I suppose that's where it, it, it just becomes too complex a system to apply any particular yes. rule to it. However, I would argue that there are um, there still are rights and wrongs. There's betters and worses. Yes. I don't think there's rights and wrongs. Okay. Yes. I think that's the point, actually, that I'm going to get to, is that <laughs> that's my basic Go on, make your point, because we're pretty much at the end of all my questions. No, that, that, is, that is the point. I think, ethically speaking, there are betters and there, there are worses. Um, I think if you're deliberately setting out to use the most aggressive techniques you possibly can to get people to play your game as much as humanly possible, then you've you know you know you're doing wrong. If in your heart you're sat there going, "How can we make people addicted to this game?" Mm. I don't think this question can be answered. I don't Do you think it's important to try to continue to try and find better answers? Yes, that's why I keep asking it, and why I keep writing about it and talking about it, and why I want to talk about it now especially considering what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very important to, to keep asking the question um, and to keep looking, like I say, more and more at the... At the at now we've got to a point where time... The, uh, time is our only irreducible currency. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the hard currency of life. Yeah. It's your premium currency. So spend it wisely. We should probably end on that note. That feels like a good note to end on. Go and say it again, Sarah. Can't remember. Time. Time is our premium currency, so we should spend it wisely.
So there we go. Thank you so much for listening to me talk to the excellent Mark Sorrell based on an interview I did with him a year and a bit ago. If you liked hearing from Sorrell, you can reward him by downloading lots of Rovio games and letting them retain and monetize you. Or you can follow him on Twitter at Sorrell. S-O-R-R-E-L-L. The music from the podcast has been very kindly provided by Daniel J. Harvey, who's a good friend of mine and also a brilliant musician. His band is called Olympians. You can find them on Twitter at Onward Olympians and also on Bandcamp, olympians.bandcamp.com. So check them out as well. I've been Hannah Nicklin, and if you've enjoyed this podcast and would like them to come out more regularly than this, then you can help by supporting my Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Hannah Nicklin, which also supports my weird and wonderful games, writing, criticism and performance talks. Rewards are things like behind-the-scenes footage, interviews and a yearly zine I make every year of my collected works from that previous year. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at Hannah Nicklin and I hope you have yourselves a lovely rest of the day. Thank you for putting me in your ears. Bye.